Welcome, weary travelers. You are just in time for a special episode of the For Crits and Giggles podcast. I am Kieran Bennett, your dungeon master for this tale. And what a tale! This evening, we will be delving into the lore of the world of Crits and Giggles. Ianus. Where did it come from? Who are the gods that watch over it? And is it only Leafton that loves yams? So yeah, hey everyone. Uh, welcome to a special episode of the Crits and Giggles podcast. Uh, I am Kieran, of course. Uh, joining me this evening is no one, uh, because everyone's actually still um, on holiday at the moment. Um, and will be for a few more days. So I'm, as they say, riding solo. Uh, yeah, so this evening we're going to be talking about uh, some of the history and the lore of uh, the world of the Crits and Giggles podcast, which, as you may have possibly picked up from the intro, is called Ianus. Um, so we're going to be talking about some of the gods, where the world comes from, and uh, then we're probably going to finish up with, uh, you know, the, the, the current area that we're currently exploring in at the moment. Uh, so that, you know, when some stuff happens and uh, a little bit later, a little bit later in the podcast, it's not it's not too confusing. It's not too surprising. Uh, you know, you know, when a, when, when a dragon shows up, you're not super surprised that there are dragons. There are no dragons. Sorry. Not yet. Anyway, so figure we'll just uh, get right to it. So in the beginning, there was nothing but the astral plane, which, you know, if you really want to if you want to visualize it, it's just a black expanse. There's nothing. It's cold. It's dark. Nothing can live in it. Nothing has ever lived in it. And then came Ikana, the weaver, the goddess of fate and destiny. And she looked out and she saw this empty void and figured, I'll fill it with something. And she began to weave. She weaved time itself. And so from the first threads that she spun came Celestian, goddess of the astral plane. And she was born completely unaware of who had come before her and completely unaware of even really where she was and what was going on. And her first instinct was to explore, was to wander around the astral plane and see what, if anything, that she could find. Now, she didn't really find anything in her first sort of journey because you know she she was literally the first thing to exist in the universe her, her power was just immense larger than anything there has ever been in the universe and so you know when she was traveling as she traveled energy just was dripping off her and these magnificent and terrifying creatures were brought into existence and, and drift around the astral plane and it said that to this day in the barriers between the worlds exist giant creatures just that defy the imagination and so she traveled around you know basically giving accidental birth to these creatures uh, but you know even though she was incredibly powerful she still had to stop occasionally uh, you know to rest and so when she rested, you know, she gave off more energy, just more and more energy in one place. And wherever she stopped to rest for, you know, night, as it were, uh, worlds were created. 
you know, planes of existence, each different, everyone unique. And she traveled for, for eons, eons and eons and eons, just so long. And from her traveling and her resting, thousands upon thousands of worlds and creatures were given life. And, you know, she finally got to the end of her journey and she, she had explored all she, she could and all she wanted. And, you know, it had been a while. So she had, she had, she had to sleep. She had to rest. And as she slept, she began to dream. And from her dreams came Ran Baltor, the god of sleep and dreams. And basically they, they met each other. And keeping in mind here that Celestine has no idea that Ikana is even, is even real, is even a thing. As far as she can, she's concerned, she's essentially alone. You know, she's given birth to these other creatures and these worlds, but there's nothing really to, you know, there's nothing really for her to relate to. You know, there's no, there are no other gods other than now Ran Baltor. So they basically get together and say, well, you know, we're alone. Let's, you know, let's make more gods so that, you know, the universe isn't so empty. And so they gave birth to Iambulus, the god of magic and knowledge, Lau, the god of secrets and darkness, Ariante, the goddess of peace, and Gorthia, the goddess of freedom. Ranbaltor, being the god of sleep and dreams, was pretty absent for essentially everything after this, due to being asleep and perusing the realm of dreams as he is wont to do. But Celestine was instantly smitten with what she considered to be her children. And she took them around the astral plane and showed them all the creatures that she had created and all the worlds that she had, that she had birthed. And her children were equally as delighted and filled them with life, filled them with creatures, filled them with magic and all kinds of wonderful, wonderful things. But as great as everything was, as, as good a time, essentially, as they were all having, cruising around and, and learning about these various worlds and filling them with life and filling them with, with power, uh, it wasn't to last. Celestine was just bleeding more and more of her power into the astral plane, which for the astral plane and the worlds that were in it and the creatures that were, were now living in it and on the worlds in it, this was a this is a great thing this is a good thing she essentially became distant she preferred to spend more of her time just exploring the far far reaches of the astral plane away from her children away from what she had created and eventually she all but left her children by themselves and with Rambal Tor spending most of his time in the realm of dreams, her children found themselves essentially left to their own devices. Her children were alone, other than each other, and so they thought, let's follow in our parents' footsteps and create more worlds, create more gods. So Iambulus and Gulfaya brought Calenus, the god of valor and battle, into the world, and joining him is his crueler twin sister, Calais, the goddess of tyranny and war. Then Calanus and Calais, they've now been brought into the world. And so they did what was expected of them. And they used their powers to, you know, give birth to more creatures and 
more you know more sentient races and they filled the worlds in the astral plane with these things but what was not really expected was that they would give birth to two more gods Handor, the god of strength and Asgaral, the god of blood and slaughter this was kind of unexpected because you know no one none of the gods were really sure about how the whole sort of process worked you know who was able to make gods who should have that responsibility you know what were the consequences of there being more gods but you know this early in the piece no one no one really cared no nothing nothing really bad was happening the astral plane pretty soon got a little more crowded when laul and ariante brought obed high the god of nature into the world now obed high was pretty content to just sort of hang out in various places and create more and more natural wonders it was what brought him joy but even he started to get a little lonely as well so he essentially created or he grew a wife for himself antalia the goddess of luck and revelry and so then they in turn brought sarnea the goddess of the woodlands and farming into the astral plane so things are getting a little crowded now but there's still there's still one god who's not a hundred percent satisfied Lowell, the god of secrets and darkness not exactly not a bad guy but not a good guy either he was kind of disappointed in obed high now obed high as i said was pretty content to just hang out make things grow trees and that sort of thing he had none of his father's desire for power desire for secrets or you know thirst to to kind of control more and more uh more and more portions of the astral plane so Lao took it upon himself to actually create another god by himself and the result was salam thur the god of disasters and disease this turned out to be a pretty terrible idea now salam thur was wild and unruly and completely out of control now earlier Calais, the goddess of tyranny and war was brought into the world but she was tempered by her brother she was tempered by the fact that war and battle can't exist without there being a good side and a bad side whereas salam thur was just random and destructive and Asgaral, the god of blood and slaughter, while obviously neither of those things are particularly fantastic, he he was tempered by his parents, he was tempered by his brothers, and he was tempered by the other gods. Salamthur was only created from Laul's flesh, and so he was just completely out of control. He wiped out worlds entirely. He destroyed things without any kind of desire to create anything else no one was particularly pleased so in an effort to kind of balance this out in the same way that a lot of the other gods had balanced out their children uh Eambulus and ariante gave birth to solarion the god of healing and the sun now Eambulus, by virtue of being technically the oldest decreed that solarion was to be the last of the gods there was just too much risk in creating more gods they could for all they know give birth to 
the god of you know fluffy kittens or something but equally they could end up with another salen fur it could have it could go badly so he decreed there were to be no more gods obviously Lao was very disappointed in this because now he has two disappointing children one of whom is good and one of whom is just way 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 too evil but seeing what salen fur had done he agreed because the astral plane and its worlds, while filled with power, magic, and wondrous creatures, the whole thing was very delicate. Much like their mother, the gods had spent hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years pouring their power and energy into the thousands of worlds within the astral plane. And if there was any kind of, you know, war that broke out, or if any one of them became too powerful, if there were any god that would threaten that balance, the universe may end up tearing itself apart. However, like any good story, there's a healthy dose of betrayal. Eambulus, the god of magic and knowledge, was growing frustrated at his inability to truly understand the mysteries of the universe that he lived in. He couldn't pierce the veil between this world and the next. He didn't understand where worlds had come from. He didn't understand the origins of the gods he did there were so many things that he didn't know and it burned him up inside and so he betrayed his brothers his sisters and his children and he followed in the path of Lao and created Korthar god of the forge to assist him in his experiments Korthar assisted his father in creating fantastic devices to measure things cut things take things and generally just help Eambulus try and understand the universe more. Eambulus didn't really see anything wrong with what he'd done because, well, he was kind of a selfish asshole. But the gods may be many things, but they're not blind. When the other gods found out about the existence of Korthar, while they didn't have any kind of anger towards Korthar himself, they certainly did towards his father, Laul especially, since it was his son that had caused this decree to come into place, that there would be no more gods. And so there was war. There was war between the gods. And the conflict that followed between them over this betrayal eclipsed anything that had ever been, or in fact ever will be. The gods were utterly careless in their war. They expended power like you wouldn't believe countless worlds destroyed in the blink of an eye just hundreds upon hundreds of creatures slain where they stood as the entire place was just ripped apart with this fighting and it potentially could have consumed the entire universe had Celestine not returned to find what her children had done so she was just distraught in the worst way and enraged beyond mortal scope. And so she created what was to be her greatest and final work. So she bound her children's power together and bound it with her own, and she created Ianus, our land. And so the full extent of her powers to bear, she chained her children via their powers to our world and commanded them till the end of time to care for it and so her children were obviously not pleased with this they wanted to keep on doing what they were doing before 
hanging out in the astral plane, creating things, being gods. But they found that their powers had been greatly reduced. For their mother had tied her children's powers to Ianis, meaning that if they were to go to war again and possibly risk destroying Ianis and anything around it, they themselves may be destroyed. And understandably, they didn't take this very well. They took it pretty badly. And so instead of immediately taking the responsibility that they needed to, caring for the world that they had been chained to, they fled. Because while their powers might have been chained, their physical forms weren't. So they fled. They ran away. They went home and licked their wounds. And for thousands of years, the universe was silent. The gods were content to exist away from each other, have nothing to do with each other, and essentially they were sulking. Soon, however, they found that their powers were not quite what they used to be. They couldn't control the worlds that they lived in with the same kind of ease that they could before. They couldn't do the miracles that they could before. They, they were at a reduced capacity. And so, somewhat unwillingly, they convened on the Yanis. And when they all kind of arrived, when they all got together, they immediately realized that the only way that they could stop their energy, their power from just dissipating into nothing and thus dying, in a sense, would be to follow their mother's instructions, fill Ianus with life, and care for it. While most of the gods filled Ianus with creatures, there were a few who went down a different path. Most of the gods looked upon Ianus and filled it with creatures, filled it with what might be called monsters, filled it with magical wonders to be discovered at a later date. Iambulus and Laul, however, abstained, preferring instead to basically physically give more of their power to Ianus, that the world may grow larger, stronger, and essentially more powerful. And Obed-Hai wanted to protect these sweeping sort of natural wonders that he created. And so he crafted the elves and set them to care for the places that he had created. And Talia, his wife, was understandably bored with the sort of dour, uptight elves that her husband had created. And so she created the halflings and set them to roam the land, bringing cheer, revelry, and maybe luck wherever they traveled. And their daughter Sarnea followed in her parents' footsteps and created the gnomes, who she tasked to also wander the land and teach other races how to extract her father's gifts from the land, thus bringing farming to the world of Ianus. Korthar, on the other hand, was a little different. He was essentially at the center of the last great war of the astral plane, so he wasn't really feeling up to, uh, you know, hanging out, as it were. So he scrolled himself away in the mountains and created the dwarves, that they might assist him in creating more things, that they might assist him in extracting minerals and metals from the world. And in short, that they might assist him in not really having to deal with anything. Sularion, god of healing, created humans in the hopes that they would craft mighty cities 
and it would all be a beacon of his healing power and the good that he wanted to do in this world. So while, for example, Sularion might have created the humans and Sarnea created the gnomes, the gnomes did not exclusively worship Sarnea and the humans did not exclusively worship Sularion. They found that these races that they, they had created were far more independent and far more willful than anything else they had seen before, which is why now you have the gods worshipped in Ianus as a whole, as a pantheon, rather than only humans worshipping Solarion and only gnomes worshipping Sarnea. They found that these races that they had created, these creatures that they had crafted, were quite capable and quite willing to do whatever they wanted to, which was something that the gods weren't entirely upset about. These races were free to do what they want, which on the whole was to worship them. It was to give thanks to those that had given them life. And the gods found that, much like their mother had said, this was a good thing. They enjoyed it. Life on Iannis had its dangers. Monsters had been created. Mistakes were made, as it were. But life was peaceful. Until the younger gods entered Dar. What the gods had not counted on was that Iannis was a mortal realm. It was a mortal realm constructed of immortal power. So Iannis, Iannis is a dynamic place. It changes. It lives, almost, in a way. And so when their mortal followers began to die, instead of dying and going to wherever it is you may go after you die, instead they found their followers going into the realm of Vichma, the goddess of death, a goddess born wholly only of Iannis, born from essentially too many things dying. And so when their followers banded together for safety and comfort against monsters and just as a natural response, Grumsh, the god of tribes and unity, was also born. And when the first dwarven and human cities began to form great, great capitals, Iptar, the goddess of cities and empires, was also born. Small spiritual forces on Ianus at first. By the time the gods realized what had occurred, there was nothing they could do about it. Vichma, Grumsh, and Iptar were fully realized gods of their own right. And it had nothing to do with them. The world had three new gods. Now, instead of taking this like, say, normal people and just kind of rolling with it, distrust between the gods just grew. None of the others could believe that the others had not created a new god. But what really set it all off what really sparked the flames, as it were, was when Grumsh, desiring his own people, a people to, that he could call his own, created the orcs, who were a vicious, warlike race, but who banded together in fiercely, fiercely loyal tribes. Once he had created his own race, that was the final straw. They completely ignored what had happened in the past, and war erupted again. Ianus was covered in conflict and fire as gods fought God, using what they had created on Ianus as well to wage war. The second war was 
horrific. Not only did the gods use their powers against each other and use them against each other's followers, but each other's followers fought each other. But it was to come to a fairly swift conclusion. The chaos, violence, and bloodshed generated by this war was so great that much in the same way that death, unity, and the arrival of cities and empires had birthed gods, the war also birthed another god, Jardar, the god of chaos. Upon his birth, he did not simply come into being like the other gods. He literally split the land asunder, destroyed entire continents in the moment of his birth, and destroyed hundreds and thousands of creatures around him. Fearing not only for their lives, but for the lives of their followers and Ianus itself, the gods turned away from each other into Jodar. Realizing what their infighting had done, they combined their powers to seal Jodar away from Ianus and the rest of the astral plane. But they realized that Jodar was hungry. Jodar wanted to destroy Ianus. Jodar wanted to destroy them. There was no way they could stay on Ianus and not have Jodar drawn constantly to their followers. And so they made the heavy decision to leave Ianus forever. The gods departed Ianus for their homes in the astral plane, where to this day they reside watching over Ianus and shaping the land. So, that's where Ianus comes from. That's where the world originated. That's, that's how the gods fit into this whole thing. And that, I suppose, at its heart, is really what Ianus is about. The gods are real. The gods grant miracles. The gods... The gods. <laughs> the gods grant miracles. The gods exist. When you plant your crops, you pray to the gods. Otherwise, your crops may not actually grow. So let's talk about the shape of Ianus, where everything sits, where all the different races are, and how it all kind of fits together. So in the middle, we've got plains. We've got humans, cities, and roads. To the west and to the east, huge expanses of forest populated by a few humans, but mainly separate tribes of elves. Further to the east is another human kingdom. Then to the north is a large range of mountains and rocky hills, mainly filled with dwarves, but also filled with elves. Again, separate tribes of elves. Further beyond that is the cold north. No one lives up there other than a few tribes of elves because it's just too cold. To the south of the plains where the humans live is sort of riverland, wide gorges, canyons, that sort of thing. And this is kind of a melting pot culturally and racially. Many, many races live together in this portion of the world. There's a lot of trade happening. There's a lot of bartering and exchanging happening in this part of the world. There's a lot of opportunity. So a lot of people come down here to live and end up staying because it's kind of a cool place to be. Further down in the sea is what's not really colloquially called, but is kind of known in like a roundabout way as the birthplace of Jodar. This is covered in hundreds of islands. And there are some seafaring tribes of elves and some humans, but on the whole, this place is 
pretty pretty wild west it's pretty uncharted no one really lives out here because it's kind of dangerous it's full of monsters it's far away why would you live out here when there's a whole bunch of other safer places to live further north now you might be thinking well hang on what about gnomes and halflings they don't seem to really have you know their own kind of area well they don't because they're nomadic races halflings live kind of like gypsies they wander around in caravans selling wares, tricks, performances, and generally just kind of making a living where they can. And, you know, that's kind of how they like it. They prefer a freer, more carefree lifestyle. Gnomes, on the other hand, are a little bit different. They were originally created by Sarnia, the goddess of farming. So while you'd think that would lend them to wanting to stay in one place, they were actually tasked with teaching other races how to farm not in fact doing it themselves and so this is kind of translated into them basically having their houses mobile where halflings live in caravans with very little possessions gnomes are quite happy to have very large very perfectly functioning houses and in some cases even small plots of land that they farm they just kind of like to take them with them so both of those races can be found pretty much anywhere that there are other people around, even in the islands to the south. So, where are our heroes at the moment? Well, they're in the middle. They're kind of in the border area between the elf tribes to the east and the plains where the humans live. Now, where the humans are is what's known as the Lorddoms of Cantilia. This is kind of a fiefdom, sort of ruled by kings type area. Uh, consists of a council of ten kings and lords, under which exist multiple other lords, ladies, dukes, duchesses, and barons, and other, you know, what have you. Uh, the lorddoms are mainly comprised of large cities joined by roads, lots of, you know, very efficient trade and travel and, you know, signposts and things like that. Kind of a cross between medieval England and the Roman Empire. Very bureaucrat, very proper, very, you know, very traditional in their approach to things. And their main strength is their farming and their trade. They have a lot of space for farming and they're very well connected. Thousands of years ago, they were some of the first humans to ever learn from the gnomes. And so they're kind of good at farming and as a result, they're kind of good at trade. So their cities are primarily human, but they do have other races by virtue of being in the middle. A lot of people flock to them because, you know, where else are you going to go? Uh, now, they sometimes have issues with the elves to the west and to the east, uh, mainly because the elves don't really, they don't really see the point in trade. You know, they're, they're happy to protect and live with nature. They're happy to protect and live with the world around them, whereas the lorddoms see it as an opportunity to trade. They want to use the world. They want to, you know, they want to, they want to trade grain and food for wood from from the forest but the elves aren't always willing to do that so this can and has most definitely been the source of some pretty fierce conflict in the past uh, the dwarves to the north actually provide them with metals and other you know raw materials like that including weapons and tools because in the plains there's not really a lot of that stuff kind of going around but lately the dwarves have grown kind of distant and their offers of trade 
have actually lessened and the prices have gone up and the lorddoms of Cantilia are kind of starting to suffer from it. You know, they, they can't trade to get what they need. And while they never really need wood, they can always get it themselves if they really need to, they can't get weapons and tools in the same quantities that they can from the dwarves. So now we get to where our heroes currently sit in the world. What's happening in the world at the same time as our heroes? The land is relatively at peace. It has been several years, and I mean like a whole generation, since the last significant war. Nothing, nothing particularly terrible has happened. That said though, there have come reports from several smaller temples that the gods are no longer answering prayers. The gods are not responding to the temples anymore. This information has been suppressed because if creatures in the forest are going mad, crops aren't sprouting, or mines are running dry, it's no doubt because the gods have turned away from Iannis. So as far as any reports from the larger temples are concerned, everything's fine. The gods communicate with us daily, but many of the smaller temples are beginning to swiftly realize that this is not the case. The gods are turning away from Iannis. Why? Who's to say? So we'll, we'll start to, so we'll start to wrap this up now, but we'll just close with, a, with just one more important piece of information. For those of you keenly listening at home, you will have noticed that I did not mention two of the other races that are mentioned in the traditional kind of Dungeons and Dragons mythos, Tiefling and Dragonborn. That is because Tiefling and Dragonborn in the world of Iannis are a new race. They have only started appearing in the last couple hundred years. They are not of the gods. Tiefling and Dragonborn are treated with distrust. They're treated with fear, and in some cases, outright hatred. If you're a tiefling in, say, a small town, you're definitely going to be the center of attention, and you're definitely going to be the subject of gossip for the next, ooh, at least the next couple years. If, however, you're a tiefling in a large city, while you're certainly gonna create a bit of a buzz, there are enough of you around that, you know, you might be forgotten after, after a little while. So this is a somewhat relatively new development on Iannis with Tiefling and Dragonborn slowly starting to sort of form their own kind of groups and alliances together to sort of, you know, try and get their own place in the world, which they have so far been denied. But that kind of stuff will come to play later. So I think that's where we'll, uh, where we'll wrap it up for, for this time. Uh, as always, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Crits and Giggles. If you'd like to talk to us, we're on Twitter always. We are at 4CNG Podcast, so give us a follow and say hello. Uh, we're also on Facebook for Crits and Giggles. Uh, don't forget to also subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you're feeling very, very generous, uh, please leave us a review. It helps us out so much so 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 much uh, if you'd also like to help us out uh, you can tell your friends tell your friends to listen to the podcast uh, so that we can get more people listening and more people you know 
enjoying enjoying our adventures uh we'll be back we'll be back next week with a normal episode the conclusion of the orcs that are attacking Fernchar. so really looking forward to uh to that happening we'll be recording that in the next couple days um until next week um yeah you know whatever i don't know tweet us if you can think of a better closing Bye.